0: As a heads up, this episode has violence, death, and sexual assault, in case those are sensitive topics. You can find more detail in the episode post at mythpodcast.com. This week on Myths and Legends, it's a tale about Romulus and Remus, two brothers with an interesting past. We'll hear all about their origin and learn why my four-year-old is right. Sometimes a bath is not a good idea. Then, on the Creature of the Week, it's the mimic dog, a friendly pup who won't stop bugging you about coming to see his improv show. This is Myths and Legends, episode 142A, Glory. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. This week, we're starting in the mythical legends of the city of Rome, somewhere around the 8th century BC. For context, we're about 400 years after Troy, a super important event for the Romans and other mythologies in Europe. Rome traces its origins to a guy named Aeneas, who fled Troy as it burned. We won't dive into the story of Aeneas today, because it only tangentially relates to that of Romulus and Remus, and it fits much better as an epic story for us to tell post-Iliad. Now, when it comes to Romulus and Remus, you may know the story as that of two babies nursing off a she-wolf, and yes, two babies absolutely suckled a she-wolf, but that's only part of the story. There's also court intrigue, murder, revenge, and one man's slow descent from a decent ruler to a mad tyrant. Emilius wept. His father, the king of Alba Longa in modern-day Italy, looked up at him, struggling to mouth words. Emilius knew the message he was trying to say. Numitor. Where was Numitor? Where was his heir? The king's son swallowed hard, but he didn't answer. He didn't need to. It was already happening. In that moment, the look in his father's eyes morphed from confusion to pain to panic. King Prakas' shallow breaths halted with a violent gag as he reached out, clawing for his son's cloak. Helplessly, Emilius watched as sheer terror of these final moments wash through his elderly father's eyes, and he wept again, as the look faded as quickly as it appeared. King Proca's muscles softened, his grip loosened, and suddenly, all was still. The king was dead. Emilius turned, looking past the dozen or so men who had stood by the king of Alba Longa in his final moments, to the warriors who stood at the door, they exchanged a glance and a nod, and the warriors left immediately. Emilius turned to his father once more and closed the late king's eyes. Long live the king. Somewhere in the city of Albalonga, the second son of Prince Numitor, now King Numitor, reclined in a hot pool in the bathhouse. Today he was lucky. Usually at this hour, the bath was a jostling mess. And yet, he was able to get in no problem. He saw maybe one or two others bathing in different spots, but his favorite area was completely vacant. He eased down and closed his eyes. The young man came from a line of kings, stretching back to the very first time someone from his family set foot on the peninsula. He was a Trojan, a man by the name of Aeneas, who escaped his burning city to travel on something of an odyssey of his own, or so the legend went, Footsteps interrupted his thoughts, and the prince opened his eyes. He sighed. Peace and quiet was too good to last. But at least he would be just about finished before the bath became overcrowded. Two men set their towels down on the edges of the bath and splashed gruffly into the same area as the prince. The young prince nodded to the newcomers as they came to rest in the water, and he sighed slightly when they took this as an opening for conversation. One of the men introduced himself. The king was dead, he shared. And the warriors had already declared their support for the new one. The prince bobbed slightly and closed his eyes. Yeah. You hear what happened to the royal family? The other man continued. Couldn't believe that. New motorist kids? Ugh. One was killed on the road by highwaymen. The other was stabbed in a bath. What's this city coming to? With this, the prince cocked an eyebrow. Wait. He opened both eyes, and already one of the men had sidled up next to him. In one fluid motion, a forearm pressed the prince's neck to the edge of the bath while a hand covered his mouth. The prince struggled to fight him off, and that's when he felt the sting of a dagger. It had been concealed in one of the towels. And by the time the prince realized what was happening, the bath was already red with his blood. When the prince's torso had been sufficiently eviscerated, the men dropped the dagger in the water and climb from the bath. They dipped into a different pool to wash free the evidence and left the bathhouse for Amilius. It was done. His coup was complete. <music> Numitor, the rightful king, rode from Longa away from his home, his kingdom. There was one warrior who took Amilius's money and accepted the charge of burying a knife, uh, many knives, in fact, In his new king. Numitor had woken to a knife on his throat, a hand over his mouth, and a whisper in his ear. His sons were dead. His daughter was taken captive. To keep his life, he needed to leave Alba Longa now. And so he rode. He took a chariot and fled. The noise of the army and the people cheering for his brother, Emilius, the new king, echoing on the wind. Back at the palace, Emilia sat down across from Maria Silvia, informing her that she was the last of her line. Her brothers were dead. One had been killed after a tragic misunderstanding in the bath, and reports were coming in that highwaymen had murdered her other brother for mere trinkets. He'd sent someone to check on his brother, Numitor, the rightful king, Ugh! but things weren't looking good. Clearly, someone had a vendetta against her family. He had no idea who. But since Abalonga needed a king, Emilius would be stepping up for the kingdom. He did want to protect his niece, however. She was still family, after all. So he was going to put her in one of the safest, most respected positions he knew. He was going to make her a Vestal Virgin. No one would dare lay a hand on her then, lest they invoke the wrath of both gods and men. Rhea Silva could only nod. She understood exactly what was happening her uncle had usurped her father's throne and murdered her brothers. And even though she was going to live, she would effectively be neutralized. Becoming a Vestal Virgin was an honor. They were the priestesses of Vesta. They cultivated the sacred fire and oversaw ceremonies and their well-being was symbolically extremely important to the city itself. Also, this is a massive anachronism because it's widely believed that the establishment of this particular institution didn't take place until after the founding of Rome but the Roman historian Livy didn't worry about this little detail, so neither will we. The most crucial part of being a Vestal Virgin was right there in the name. Virgin. Anyone joining the College of the Vestals had to take a 30-year vow of celibacy. Rhea Silva was young, but that vow would put her well past childbearing age. And if it didn't, well, it was the ancient world. And Emilius was a king with complete control. Anything could happen in 30 years. Ria Silva looked at the floor and nodded. She knew her options. Join or die. She chose join. Anything could happen in 30 years. In the end, it had been easy. Numitor was the firstborn son and the heir apparent, but Emilius would not have been left with nothing. The old king loved his second son and gave him the family's most treasured heirlooms. The gold that their fabled ancestor, Aeneas, had taken from his home the city of Troy, as he fled. Numitor was to be the steward of the family's future, the kingship, and Aemilius was to look after the family's past. But, as Aemilius looked after his dying father during the day, he was also selling the family's heirlooms at night. A lot of money could buy a lot of things, like the nobles, for example, like assassins, like an army. If there are two points to a successful dynasty in the ancient world, they are, one, have a succession plan in place, and two, pay the army. Don't give one son enough money to do the second point and then completely wreck the first. Numitor might have been the more honorable brother, thinking that tradition and decency would save him and his home, but he was, you know, the Ned Stark to Emilius's Cersei Lannister. Now, with Numitor's sons dead and his daughter confined to a life of celibacy, the scrappy Emilius could finally rest. That was, until the attack. Emilius stormed into the room, to the weeping form of Rhea Sylvia, huddled in the corner. Stand, the king demanded. Rhea Sylvia refused. He sneered and wrenched her up by the wrist, but saw immediately why he had been called. He dropped her hand with disgust. She was pregnant. He sneered. By getting pregnant, she had profaned this position, putting the spiritual well-being of the city in danger, yes, but on a much more personal note, and a more important note for Emilius, Getting pregnant endangered his reign. A rival claimant now grew inside her. Through tears, Rhea Silvia revealed that she had been raped. Emilius pursed his lips. That was sad, of course, but unfortunately, it didn't change what had to be done. She was pregnant. A Vestal Virgin could not be pregnant. It was right there in the name. There were consequences that must follow. Like any of the Vestals that became pregnant, she would be buried alive. Rhea shook her head. That wasn't a good idea. The king stopped and turned on a heel. Yeah, he bet she thought that. No one wanted to be buried alive. That's why it was a deterrent. Rhea took a few steps toward the king, eyes locked on her captor. He didn't want to do it, because it would bring down the wrath of the gods on the city, and the king, because of the father, the only man who would dare force himself on a Vestal Virgin. It was Mars. Mars the god of war. I have to mention a few things here. This is a Roman story, so it's Mars, not Ares. But the reason why we don't call him Ares is because, in the two cultures, these gods that would have been equivalent are anything but. Ares, to the Greeks, was generally reviled and treated with contempt he almost never has any agency or personality behind insatiable bloodlust. Mars, however, for the Romans, was one of their top three gods. Ares is destructive, but Mars is seen as a way for military power to secure peace, which is a very Roman way of looking at things. The Roman orator Tacitus has the famous quote that fits this really well. It goes, to ravage, to slaughter, to usurp under false titles they call empire. And where they make a desert... They call it peace. Anyway, even though we're not in Rome yet, the fact that Rhea Silva claimed that Mars was the father was a big deal, and it did give Amelius pause. I like to imagine that he swore and ordered Rhea's door barred from the outside while he figured something out. Anyway, when it came to killing children who might be dangerous to your future rule, why reinvent the wheel? At least, that was how Amelius felt. He came to the tried and not at all true conclusion that... To get rid of these children without getting blood on his hands, he'd have to leave them to die in the wilderness. Despite that having an exactly 0% success rate in stories from mythology, he kept Rhea Silva confined to a room during her pregnancy, under a 24-hour armed guard. When the child finally arrived, Milius realized that it was so much worse than he imagined. There wasn't just one son, but two. Twins. Rhea Silvia sobbed as the children were torn from her grasp into a basket, and rushed into the waiting hands of a servant. But, as the servant looked into the rain-swollen Tiber River, 20 miles away from the city, he bit his lip. His orders were clear. Toss the babies in, and make sure they didn't come back out. It was easy enough. Babies could not swim. Except that now, as he held the sleeping twins, he found that he couldn't do it. He couldn't actively murder the children only passively murder them. So, he set them down on the banks of the Tiber River, at the foot of the tallest hill in the area, and started to walk away. When they woke up crying, he ran. (music) Giving up a child to let the elements take care of them is bad for the very obvious reason but it's also bad because it almost never works. The babies screamed because they were mere hours old, cold, and hungry. And that's when she showed up. If you're at all familiar with the story of Romulus and Remus, you probably know one thing. They had a loving wolf mom. It's said that the baby's cries attracted a she-wolf from her home at a cave at the base of the hill. And instead of doing exactly what a she-wolf would do in this situation, i.e. enjoy a little prepackaged fast food and be on her way, she did something else and became legendary. Maybe the gods were looking out for the kids. That would help explain why a she-wolf, foregoing the cross-species lactation consultations, helped the newborns to her belly, where they latched and drank. It would also explain how, as the babies grew, the exhausted wolf mother of twins didn't feel like going out for groceries, and instead ordered the 8th century BC version of DoorDash, which, if you're wondering, is woodpeckers, dropping grubs and seeds in your mouth. One morning, a swineherd, because whether it's Mordred, Atalanta, or any number of characters, it's always a shepherd who finds the kids, allowed himself a peek inside a cave and, shaking, fumbled with an arrow and fired. The she-wolf died instantly and the swineherd, still shaking, scooped up the babies and ran for home. Now, Livy, a Roman historian from the first century, likes to be a bit of a buzzkill with the story. He was the first to introduce the idea that maybe Rhea Silvia was raped, instead of having a baby with a god, which, I mean, potato-potato in Greek mythology. But he also floated the idea that the swineherd's wife, named Laurentia, had an unchaste youth, where she earned herself the name The She-Wolf, with her unchasteness, and that this nickname followed her into her merry years to the point where, when she breastfed the two babies, people joked about the she-wolf breastfeeding Romulus and Remus, and that apparently became legend. We're definitely going with the wolf version, and the woodpecker door dashers, because, according to Plutarch, that's the etymology behind both the boys' names, since, once again, according to him, Romulus and Remus both stem from the Latin word ruma, or teat, which, by extension, became the root word for the city of Rome, and one of the greatest empires of history. Mythology is fun. I feel like ancient world shepherds had two jobs. One, try not to let yourself or any of your animals get eaten. And two, watch out for buff babies who might be secret kings. Luckily, Faustulus was on the ball. He noticed that these two little babies were a lot bigger and a lot more muscular than most infants. By the fact that they were left to die on a riverbank, he immediately deduced that they were cast up by some royal plot somewhere. And so, he also knew their destiny would find them, someday but he hid that thought away in his mind. So, whether their destiny came for them today, or in 20 years, he still needed to make a living. Fostulus took the babies in as his sons. Years later, the now 17-year-old Bremus hit the ground hard and another kick connected with his ribs. A voice boomed. That was enough. Get him up. He had been running around naked with his brother, as you do, as part of a festival. The brothers were a good head taller than any of their peers, and, after their first experience being celebrated throughout the village as heroes, on account of slaying a lion known to prowl the countryside, the brothers decided that they liked that feeling. A lot. So they kept doing it. There was not any money in killing deadly beasts for sport, but there was money in going all Batman on the countryside, and lying in wait for brigands and highwaymen. They gave back what they could, but most of the golden goods belonged to people that were long dead. In time, their newfound money attracted friends, and soon the brothers, Romulus and Remus, found themselves heading up a group of 8th century BC Avengers, and the area 20 miles away from Abolonga became the safest in Italy. But there is a reason why Batman wears a mask, and also doesn't dance around naked with his brother at festivals. The bandits waited until the celebrations were in full swing, before descending down on the pair, and despite being armed to the teeth, against two guys who were basically only armed with their teeth, the bandits took heavy losses, before only being able to capture Remus. And now, he stood before the old man, someone of considerable power, who had arrived in the land secretly, nearly two decades ago. He controlled a lot of the herds that Romulus and Remus now protected, and even though he was rich and powerful, He was just. He was willing to offer a reward for the last of the bandits. The bandits themselves saw a nice way to kill two birds with one stone. They turned in Remus as the leader of the bandits, and now there was only one super brother to go. The old man ordered the prisoner to be dragged to his feet and demanded to know the man's name. The boy looked at the old man squarely. It was Remus, from the Latin word ruma, or teat. The old man smiled. All right, and he waved the last of the bandits outside, out of his shadowy stone room. Their payment was waiting for them, he said with a smile. Sneering, the bandits thanked the old man and left the room. Remus worked his rope bonds slowly and quietly, as the old man stepped down from his seat on high. When he approached Remus, the captive realized that the man was almost as tall as he was. Also, the old man had a knife in his hand, and he strode up to Remus and cut the knot at his wrist. The ropes thudded to the floor. Remus opened his mouth to ask what was going on, but the screams from the next room cut him off. The bandits were indeed getting their payment. The old man walked to the door and he closed it. As the last of the bandits in the next room crawled toward the exit before succumbing to the arrows. Turning, the old man introduced himself. His name was Numitor. He was Remus's grandfather and they were going home. As it turned out, Numidor had spies throughout Alba Longa, and he had known about his daughter's children. He couldn't find them, but he kept his ear out for word of any buff babies that had been suckling wild animals. Not as uncommon as you'd think it would be for Greco-Roman myth, the Google News alert popped up, i.e. he heard about it several months later from a traveling merchant, and he went to visit Faustulus. He had provided for the boys and, as such, they were educated by the best tutors. They grew as both kings and demigods, and now, their time had come. The basket bounced against Remus's thigh as he entered the city of Longa for the first time in 17 years. It was surreal. Once there, he made his way straight to the citadel at the center. But, rebuffed from the guards, he handed them the basket. "Please take that to Emilius, the king," he urged he had news regarding the people who had once been in that basket. The soldiers sneered, but returned trembling. The king, the king would see him now. Meanwhile, a few miles outside the city, the king's soldiers camped. The bandits that they pushed into the farmlands were now back with a vengeance, and that necessitated a response from the king. It was mostly a show of force to make a point. They could easily wipe the bandits off the map with a few soldiers, but it wasn't like there were any other enemies to worry about. At least, that's what they thought. An old man came wheezing into the camp. The enemy was at the gates. Some would-be usurper had actually made his way into the citadel, and now had the king at spear point. He had snuck dozens of men into the city over the past few days in secret. The soldiers had lost Alba Longa, their capital. The generals immediately ordered their soldiers up and out, to march back to Alba Longa as quickly as possible. They lost their own capital out on some PR mission. Walls or no, A few dozen men couldn't hold the city of their ancestors against them. The old man stood watching as the army thudded past him to go take back their city and rescue their king from Remus. Back in Abolonga, King Emilius smiled as Remus started to sweat and constantly looked out from the citadel. It was stupid. Remus was stupid. This city belonged to Emilius, and he had an army outside. Whatever misguided hereditary nonsense this kid believed he was entitled to could only end one way, in death. The intruders might have caught his personal guard by surprise, but they couldn't handle the men in the city, and the soldiers coming in from the countryside. It was over. Remus was a failure, just like his mother and his grandfather. Remus sat on the throne, with Aemilius practically draped over him, in the event that things went sideways, and he had to block a few arrows. A few of his shepherd avengers held the door, but Aemilius was right. He had always been shrewd, Brilliant, even. But you didn't have to be brilliant to see that Remus was outnumbered. The only thing keeping him alive was the spear at the king's throat. No, the usurper's throat. Just then, the horn sounded from the wall, and Emilius cracked a smile. There it was. There was Emilius's army. You know, this was actually a good thing. It meant that Numitor's grandkids wouldn't be a threat in the future. Yeah, you know, deal with the problem head on. Ah, there they were. Sounds of swords and spears rang, muffled by the heavy doors of the citadel. Before all fell silent, a moment later, the doors burst open, and Amilius's soldiers flooded into the room. Instantly, the shepherds of Team Remus stepped back, then pointed their own spears in defense. And on the throne, now facing arrows, knocked and ready, Remus let the king go. King Amilius walked over to his general, thanked him, and pointed to Remus and his shepherds. Kill them. He turned to enjoy the scene when a spear exploded from his stomach. Emilius churned and saw Numitor, his own brother, removing a helmet behind him. At his side, Romulus and the other half of the Shepherd Avengers removed their helmets too. How could this be? Soon after Numitor had warned the army outside the city, Romulus and those who had not snuck into Alba Longa crouched waiting while the exhausted army rushed back to the Taken City. In the ensuing foray, few soldiers managed to retreat. And so, Numitor and his grandson helped themselves to the armor of the fallen. And now, the rest of the story was currently bleeding out on the floor. Remus sauntered up to his uncle and knelt down so that he was next to the man. King Aemilius was right, it seemed. The only way for this to end was death. As Remus rose, Amilius fell limp. The king was dead. It seems like Longa, the city of Aeneas himself, needs a new king, Remus mused. Looking at his brother and grandfather, Romulus smiled and stepped forward. The men that Romulus and Remus had brought with them grinned. Remus heard the beginning of their chant, the one that would raise the brothers to the highest honor, and he held up his hands. No, this throne wasn't theirs. If they took it now, they would be a little better than Amilius. This throne belonged to their grandfather, Numitor. It was stolen from him all those years before, and now Romulus and Remus were restoring it. Or, Remus was. Romulus forced a smile, and tried to match the look of shock and pride plastered on his grandfather's face. They... He was stronger. They deserved Alba Longa. They had knives in the throne room and the blood of kings, the blood of gods. They didn't even need to say it. Just let it happen. But Remus didn't let it happen. He congratulated his grandfather, and clasped his brother on the back. Knowing the truth about his family, he was going home. His true home, the hills where he had been raised, and he would found a city of his own. It wouldn't be like this, though, beholden to the past, but instead, it would be new. It will be a sanctuary of the god of asylum, and they would receive all who came, delivering none to their seekers. They wouldn't give fugitives to magistrates, debtors to creditors, or slaves to masters it would become the greatest city the world would ever know, and it would be called... Well, actually, Remus didn't know what it would be called yet. He turned to his brother, Romulus. Any ideas? Next week, we'll wrap up the story of Romulus and Remus. As the brothers grow into a pair of dual kings, because that's definitely a thing that won't lead to any animosity. I'd like to say thanks to Outgoing and Michael Diaz, Sam Lucas 95, Tokyo Rob 77, Brooks Murfit, The Teddy Mac, Mother Doomsday, Roma, super cool person, a grateful teacher, Penny's 87, Care Cake, Mosey Moses, and Red Sphinx. For the reviews on Apple Podcasts, thank you all so much. It's great to read your reviews, and I really appreciate it. If you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is still the best place. You can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For less than the price of a pimple popper toy, basically it's a toy where you squeeze fake pus out of fake blackheads and try not to vomit just by looking at it, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of this show. Check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info on the membership. The creature this week is Mimic Dog, from the folklore of the Middle Ages. Now, yes, the Mimic Dog is a dog that mimics stuff, but it's so much more. It's a dog that can mimic human speech, perform tricks, wait tables, and put on a pretty solid one-dog show, among tons of other things. Now, the Mimic Dog is a strange mix between a monkey, a dog, and a hedgehog. It has a monkey-like body covered in dog-like hair, and it runs around on four legs like a dog, while having a pointed Hedgehog ish face. We're just going to completely gloss over the fact that it can talk, too, because it also did magic tricks. There are two main recorded instances of the Mimic Dog in history. The first is that it apparently put on a one man show to rave reviews for the Roman Emperor Vespasian. During its residency in Rome, it was known to be an excellent dancer and also took over waiting some tables at a fancy dinner. On the darker side of things, it's said that any resin that's produced from distilling parts of the Mimic Dog, which, yes, ew can cure hydrophobia, a symptom of rabies. Which, if there's a disease where you can just treat a symptom and not worry about the underlying cause, it's definitely rabies. The creatures were included in the numerous bestiaries in the Middle Ages. And the mystery persisted about what exactly the mimic dog was. The part where it talked and performed a play is a little difficult to explain, but for everything else, it kind of just seems like an overly hairy baboon. Oh, and for the other recorded instance, it was in 1403 in Italy. Or a blind man named Andrew said he lived with a red mimic dog who helped him out around the house. So, yeah, either Drew actually had a mythological creature living with him, or he just had a really hairy roommate who may or may not have been a baboon. That's it for this week Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time.